Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. You know, everyone deals with fear in some way, shape, or form, so today's message is going to be relevant for sure. We are in our second week in a new series called Fear Not, Living Unafraid in a World Gone Mad, and we have Myron Jellison bringing the message today. We pray that you find hope in the words that he brings. Here's Myron. Well, good morning. How we doing? It's good. You got to wake up. It's cold. So we're going we're gonna to do some calisthenics and get uh, lubricated up. Anyhow, hey, my name is Myron. Uh, I'm the next-gen pastor here at the Vineyard, or at the, yeah, <laughs> at Newbridge Church. Um, this is my first time teaching at Newbridge Church. This is kind of exciting and, and scary all at the same time. But uh, it's a privilege to get to, to talk to you today. And really, we're going to continue in our Fear Not series. And we've been uh, started last week, and we'll continue on for, the, for, for a few weeks here, a month or two, unpacking fear. Because fear is something that we all experience to leveling degrees, and it's something we need to navigate. And the Bible talks a lot about fear there, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, but it talks about fear. And, and in our world, we have um, a, a lot of fears, and, and we call them phobias, right? And the phobias are kind of funny. Anyone ever done the Google train on phobias and just seen some of the crazy, irrational fears that exist. Let me share some with you. Claustrophobia. We all know that one, right? It's fear of tight spaces. And that one makes sense. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm not claustrophobic, but I mean, I probably would be like hours on end stuck somewhere. Like, it's, it's a real thing. Then arachnophobia, right? Anybody hate spiders? <laughs> Terrified of spiders. Them things are like, like yellow jackets and spiders from Satan. I mean, they're just like, what? I don't, we don't need them in my house. Get out. But arachnophobia kind of got amplified with the movie back in the 90s. Anybody remember the arachnophobia movie? Spiders big enough to eat you. Like, talk about fear. Like, it's crazy, arachnophobia. And then here's some kind of funnier, more crazy ones that are more irrational. Podophobia, fear of feet. Now, I'm not sure if the person who has podophobia, like, goes to put on shoes and goes, oh, like, gets afraid of their own feet or their own feet's okay and it's other people's feet and... If you have podophobia, I'm not making fun of you. Maybe, I don't know, but here's another one. Xanthophobia, fear of the color yellow. School buses, like, woo, really got him there. Here's one, ablutophobia, means fear of bathing. I'm pretty sure all middle school boys have ablutophobia because they're just rank all the time. Here's one, they got an amen over here for that one. You must have middle school boys in your home. Uh, nomophobia, fear of being without your cell phone. That's pretty real. I mean, a lot of us, like you leave it at home, you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get through my day? <laughs> no candy crush. Nomophobia. And here's the funniest one of them all. I'll end it here. It's the fear of long words. I got it on the screen. Hippopotomonstrosesquipedelophobia. Even just visually seeing it, they just cower in fear. It's crazy. They, then they shorten it. Thank goodness, it's still long. It's just the second half of sesquipedelophobia, fear of long words. But anyhow, fear. We all have them. We all have something that we are afraid of or have fear in our lives and we navigate it. So we're going to unpack in this series, Fear Not, how the Bible calls us to navigate and overcome our fear. So my honest question to you today is this. What is your greatest fear? Like not, maybe not a phobia, maybe not the irrational or like these, these, these phobias, but like 
What are you really most afraid of? And I'll rephrase it this way. Insert the blank. What if blank happened? What if blank happened in your life? What are you so afraid of? And you, and you live your day and your world and your life to try to avoid that possibility from becoming a reality. What if this happened? What if you never find a spouse? What if I'm unable to conceive children? What if I <coughs> lose my job? What if my spouse cheats on me? What if I get a cancer diagnosis at a young age and I die young? What if I screw up my kids? What if something bad happens to the people that I love like a horrific accident? What if blank happens? And that fear of that hypothetical potential can have implications in how you experience the day-to-day -day life. You take measures, extreme measures sometimes, to avoid that from becoming a reality. Because fear often makes us an extremist. We'll go to great lengths to try to keep that what-if fear from happening. We tend to exaggerate. When something happens, not even like with our greatest fear, but kind of along the lines of our greatest fear, we automatically go, oh, this is it. This is the worst-case scenario. It's over. We get on Google. It's over. Like We go to the extremes, and we tend to exaggerate when fear drives the experience of our life. And we think because it's a possibility, it's going to become my reality. Just because it's a potential possibility, we think it's going to become a reality. And if you have kids, you've done this. Because I heard this conversation one time, I can't remember where I was, but I overheard this conversation about a young boy who was having stomach pain, his toddler, probably four, five, six years old, having stomach pain. And the parents are like, oh, you're probably okay. You know, they waited a day. And he's like, no, like the baby, like the toddler's like crying and he's got a severe stomach pain. They finally take him to the ER and through some scans and testing, they found that his intestine was like twisted. So he had a blocked intestine. If that would have gone untreated, it could have got infected, sepsis, and could have turned fatal for a young toddler. I'm hearing this conversation and going, oh, my son's four years old. Okay, you know. Literally, the next day, Braxton, my boy, he goes, my belly hurts. And I'm like, it's a wrapped intestine. I mean, it's got to be. Like, it just happened yesterday. Like, he's going to die. We got to take him to the doctor. And my wife's like, no, I think he might just need to poop. <laughs> and lo and behold, he had a bowel movement and his pain was gone. And praise Jesus, right? But because it's a, we've heard it, because we've seen it, because it's been somebody else's experience, when there's a hint of that happening in our own life, we immediately go to the extreme and think, man, that's got to be what it is. It's called anticip anticipatory anxiety because you've heard it, seen it, or someone else has experienced it. You think it's going to happen to you. And everything that happens kind of around that idea, you think it's the worst case scenario. And we all do that to a degree. And really with our kids, we do that to our kids. But here's the thing I want to free you of right now, parents. Your kids are God's kids before they're your kids. And he will provide, if, you, if you're obedient and you follow and you trust and you live in his presence, in his purpose, man, he will provide. And he's in sovereign control over your kid's life. And you don't have to be so fearful of your kids. Now, there are good measures you should take with your kids, and I'll get to that. But because we are exposed to the world's constant, constant evil and what-ifs and hypotheticals, it plagues us with fear. Every school shooting that happens, immediately we go, man, that might be my kid's school next. 
every murder case, every sexual assault case, every uh, cancer diagnosis that's filling my timeline right now on my social media. And I don't know about your timeline. My timeline seems to be getting more prevalent with those things. And I don't spend a lot of time on social media. And there's death and there's, there's car accidents and there's a crashing economy. There's a war overseas. There's the doom and gloom of a failing economy, the election. And all of these things are happening simultaneously that we are inputting into our brain and it just plagues us with, oh my gosh, fear. And here's the thing. I don't think our brains were ever meant to be exposed to all of the world's evils simultaneously that technology has allowed us to be connected to. And when you input all of that hypothetical potential extremes that happen in people's lives and you start to absorb it and think it's going to become you, it can plague and derail the experience that God wants you to have in this life of joy and of peace. It overwhelms our brain and we tend to be fearful. And fear, it can either debilitate you or it can inform you. And here's what I mean by that. Some measures are good to take based on fear. Like, don't jump out of an airplane without a parachute. Like, that's probably, that's a good fear to have, unless you're the extreme sports enthusiast, and those guys sometimes don't make it, or the wingsuit dudes. Like, those, those guys are insane, but fear is good. Like, you should wear your seatbelt because you know that's probably going to save your life, maybe, if you get into a, a hypothetical crash, which, again, you don't drive with fear of getting in a crash, but you love your loved ones, you love your kids, and so you set the example, and out of love, you put on a seatbelt. And, and yeah, you should protect your kids from having unmonitored uh, time on cell phones and devices and social media, and because you, you're fearful a little bit of what they're going to be exposed to, but yet, don't let it be a motivator out of fear, but out of love of, I want to protect their mind. I want to love them. I want to empower them to not be tempted and fall into the cycles and patterns that I see are so detrimental to this young generation. It's a motivation out of love, not fear. Because if fear is your motivator, it'll debilitate and derail your experience in this life. So fear can inform you to make better decisions, but it cannot be the sole mo motivator of why you do everything because it'll make you neurotic and crazy. And if hypothetical situations dominate your headspace, you might be controlled by fear. If the hypotheticals is dominating your headspace, you might be controlled by fear. And if you live in the world of what ifs, you're being robbed of the right now. You're being robbed of the fullness of life that God wants to give you right now, if you live in the what ifs. So I got three things on how to face your greatest fear. Your greatest what if. And we're going to go to Joshua, Joshua chapter one, verses one through nine. He's the newly appointed leader over the nation of Israel. This guy's got some fear. Like he's got big shoes to fill. He's, he's the successor to Moses, one of the greatest leaders. He went up on the mountain, got the stone tablets, inter, interfaced with God through a burning bush and in his presence. Like this dude's a rock star of a leader of the nation of Israel, set them free from captivity in Egypt. And now he is the successor, he's probably afraid. And he's about to get called to lead the people into the promised land that they have been trying to get to, but have been derailed because of their disobedience. And the people are, are frustrated and they're grumbling. And you can imagine trying to get the people now to overcome their fear to take the promised land. And so he needed to be strong and courageous. And there's some principles that I think God wants us to adopt to overcome our greatest fear, to be strong and courageous. Verse one of Joshua chapter one. <clears throat> After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, 
Moses' aid. Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will be extend will extend from the desert to, Leb- to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the West. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Joshua, it's time. You're the new leader. I know you're afraid. And the reason I know you're afraid, and we know he's afraid, is because God had to speak to him. Be strong and courageous. You can see why Joshua would be so terrified to now take the promised land because they've been, they've been battling against this and they haven't got there yet. And there's all kind of doubt and insecurity, I'm sure, in his ability to lead and the people wanting to even get there. Let me take you back through the backstory of where the nation of Israel has been up to this point. It's in Numbers 13, 14, 15. You can read about this. And so they get set free from Egypt by Moses. He leads them uh, out of captivity. And now they're in this place and they're ready to take the promised land. And, and in Numbers 13, Moses says, or the Lord says to Moses, send, send some spies, 12 spies, some men to scout the land. And so they do. Twelve guys, they go out. They're young guys. They go out and scout the land. And they're looking at the walls of the cities, the army size, the the fertileness of the land, the soil, the cattle, the the landscape, just to see if it is as good as God is promising that it would be. And that's a strategic move to do. And so they do it. They spend 40 days on this expedition, spying out the land. And the spies come back. And uh, there's only two of them that give a good report, Caleb and Joshua. Joshua will become the, the new leader of the nation. And Caleb and Joshua, jo- Caleb's like so uh, ambitious, like, let's do it now. We can take the land. Let's do it now. And, and Joshua's kind of in that same camp with him. But then there's 10 others who are like, oh, no, there's giants there. The walls are massive. Um, the land is not great. The fruit is terrible. Like, it's not flowing with milk and honey like God promised. Let's not go. You know what? Let's go back to captivity in Egypt. That would be way better. Why would we go out here and die by the sword from these giants and these cities that are too strong for us? It was nice. We got three meals a day in, in captivity. We, I mean, it was kind of nice there. And so those 10 spies start to say that to the whole nation and turn the whole nation against Moses and they want to overthrow Moses and go back to captivity in Egypt. You read the story, it's crazy. Those 10 spies end up dying by plague and then Moses and the people are cursed with 40 years in the wilderness because of the 40-day journey of the spies and their unwillingness to be obedient. It's crazy. And so now they've, they've gone through this 40 years in the desert wandering. Moses is now dead. Joshua takes the reins. He's about to lead this group of people who've been told 40 years ago, the land's not inhabitable. It's not good. Armies are too big. Could you imagine the fear? Like, are you sure? Joshua, are you sure the Lord said, get ready to go? So Joshua and his insecurity is afraid. The whole nation is probably afraid. And they have to be strong and courageous to overcome their greatest fear of taking the promised land. In verse 7, It reiterates, so we know they're afraid. Be strong and very courageous, the Lord says to Joshua. Be careful. I love it. Underline, be careful. 
to obey the law my, my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not turn right and left. Be careful. Here's my first point of how you overcome fear. You have to realize this. Know your feelings are real, but not always reliable. You gotta know that your feelings are real. When you have fear, that's a real feeling. God made your brain and the chemicals in your brain to experience fear. He knows that about our design. But yet, over and over and over again, the Bible says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Do not be afraid because your feelings are not always a reliable source of what God is saying is true. And if God has said it, we can trust it and know that it's good for us. But yet their feelings got the best of them, the nation of Israel often. And the feelings get the best of us often, where we think our feelings is what's real and what is true. And the world and the messaging of the world plays to our flesh and says, yeah, whatever you feel is right, that's what's right. Whatever you feel is what is true. But courage is, is determined by the decisions you make, not by the feelings you have. Courage is determined by the decisions you choose to make and not by the feelings that you have. Despite or in spite of the feelings that you have, you're willing to do the right thing by God, even though you're scared to death. You can have the fear. Yes, it's okay. It's part of our design, our flesh, but it's what we do with the fear that matters. So will you be strong and will you be courageous? Will you do the right thing, even though you're scared to death, following God's truth, his promise, his plan, and his command over your life? That's what we have to realize. Your feelings are real. Not always a reliable source of what is true. And I love that God said, be careful to obey the law. Be careful, be careful, be on guard, be intentional. And he says, do not go to the right or to the left. Oftentimes what we do is we compromise just slightly to the right or to the left, just a hair on what God has spoken, what the word of God has said to be true. And we let our feelings be the, really the driver of why we make the small compromise to the right or to the left. God knows this about Joshua. He knows this about the nation of Israel. He knows this about you. Your feelings will say, ah, I mean, we can just fudge a little bit here. You know, did, the, did, did, did God really mean that? Did the author in the Bible, when the Bible was written, really mean that? Because it doesn't feel like that's what it should be or how it should apply to our modern day society today. And here's the thing about God's word. It's authoritative and it has implications for you and I in this world, in this life today. And so will you not let your feelings cause small compromises to the right or to the left and you will be careful to follow the law or follow the commands, follow the Bible, follow the truth that God has. And here's the tactic of the enemy from the first, first pages of the Bible to today. It's exactly how Satan works. He wants you to believe this question. Did God really say that? It's exactly what he says to Eve in the garden. Let's go to Genesis chapter three real quick. And this is what it says in verse one, second half of verse one through verse five. The serpent, who was the most crafty creature God ever created, said to the woman, did God actually say, did he actually mean that when he said it? Are you sure? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He asked such a vague generality. And the woman says to the serpent, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. There's one tree we shouldn't eat of. And then she goes on and said, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, if you trace back, God never said, don't touch it. She added 
to God's command. She exaggerated. She took it one step farther. And it's a noble thing that we do. We want to try to go a little bit farther. We want to try to manipulate what God has said and try to make it culturally relevant or more applicable to our modern day society. And I'd say this, do not add to God's word and don't take away. The Bible says very clearly, do not add or take away anything from God's word. And that's what Eve did first. And then he's like, well, did he really say, is that really what he meant? Exactly what Satan wants to do is get you to question God and his goodness and his authority over the truth in his word and get you to make small compromises. He's not going to try to make you make a huge moral failure. Eventually, you might get there because small compromises over time, I believe, will lead to a greater moral compromise from God's truth. Be careful not to stray from the right and to the left. The serpent goes on and says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, he's seeding more lies, more deception. It's exactly what he did in the first pages of the Bible with the first human beings. And his scheme has been the same for all of time. Did God really say that? Be careful. Because facing your fear starts with doing what God says. Everything God says holding fast to the truths in his word, trusting him, building your courage by making faith-based decisions and not feeling-based decisions. And don't let your feelings determine the truth, but let the truth be the truth and let it inform your feelings. Second thing of how to overcome God's truth is this. Write the truth of God's word on your heart. Write it on your heart. It goes on. The Lord speaking to Joshua says this in verse eight. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate it, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful. He says it again. God says it again. Be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? If you didn't hear me already, be strong and courageous the third time. He said this. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you will go. He's reiterating, know my law, know my book, know my command. And yet we're under a new covenant with with Jesus's blood, the New Testament, the new covenant. But his Bible, his word, his truth, that is the law that is applicable to us. And so is it on your lips? You can't say something that you don't know. And you can't know something that you haven't learned or haven't studied or been intentional about. He's saying, Joshua, do you know this? Have you written this on your heart and on your mind? Have you meditated on it day and night? You can't follow something that you don't know exists. There was an author. He's a civil liberties lawyer, Harvey Silvergate. I didn't read this book. I just found it in my searching on Google. But in his book, he says that the average person unknowingly breaks three federal criminal laws every day. You're a criminal probably on the way to church today. You've broken three federally criminal laws without even knowing it because you didn't even know the law existed. But just because the law exists and you break it doesn't mean you're exempt from the consequences of that law, correct? You might plead in front of a jury and there has been instances where ignorance of the law has gotten you some grace, but not really in the court of law by man-made laws. They'll still give you the consequence even though you didn't know it. And in a just God who is just against all sin and evilness, If we are out of line, there are consequences when it comes to God's law, his command, his truth. And just because you don't know it, you can't play the ignorance card. Now there's grace. I know, yes, there is tons of grace and more grace to those who are humble. 
But if you want to follow God and be obedient to God, do you know his word? Do you know his truth? Do you meditate it on? Is it written on your heart? And I love, if we go back to verse 7, it says, hey, wherever you will go, and then in verse 8 it says, you will be successful and prosperous if you don't turn right and left. Obey the law, obey the truth. And even if Joshua doesn't get his people to the promised land, they would have success. They would be blessed because they're being obedient to God's word. You see, because oftentimes blessing comes after obedience, usually. When we are obedient to God's word and we're faithful to his word, you will be blessed. And I don't mean bigger house, bigger car, more money, better marriage. I'm not saying all that. It's not the prosperity gospel. You do this and you're getting this back. But I know people who are, who are older and at the end of their life and they were poor, they got no retirement, living in a dilapidated house, and they would look you in the eye and say, I have had a blessed life. Not because they got monetary things in our value system of the world, but because they had joy and peace and contentment and satisfaction by having a relationship with the God of the universe. And he met their needs. And they are more happy and they are more successful because they're blessed in the economy of God's blessing and not in the world's blessing. And obedience precedes God's blessing. His favor. His favor is with the nation of Israel. The favor will be with Joshua. They will overthrow all those cities. I'm spoiling the story for you. They're going to overthrow Jericho. They're going to take the promised land. It's going to be incredible because they're being obedient. Does that mean it's not, does that, that mean it wasn't hard? Man, it was probably hard. Did they doubt themselves regularly? Probably. Were they were overcome with fear on the regular? Yes, but they persevered through it, trusting God, were strong and courageous time and time again, and God's blessing would be made manifest in their life. Do not be afraid. God already won the battle. If he's with you, who can overtake you? If he's on your side and you're following his truth and you're living his life and his plan and his purpose, you'll never fail. Never. Success might look differently, but you'll never fail. The Bible, 158 times, says fear not. And then do not be afraid is said 42 times, depending on what translation you have. But over 200 times, the Bible says do not be afraid when talking to God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. You don't have to live with fear. You don't have to live plagued with the what if it's going to happen because you know God's got a plan and a purpose on the other side of it. And yes, you can take practical applications and, and things that are good and healthy, but if it consumes you, I would ask you, are you trusting God with it? Are you believing God with it and through it? Have you written his word on your heart? And the thing about writing God's word on your heart, it's more than just knowing the word or the law or the command, because when you study his word, you get to know who God is which is way more important than navigating your fear than knowing what the word says verbatim. You get to see how loving he is and merciful and grace, gracious he is and how faithful he is and how he's, he's rescued and he's ministered and he's reached and he's restored and he's renewed so many people and he will do the same for you. You get to know the character of God more than the actual law of God and that's what will get you through your fear because you know who's on your side. And not because you turn into a legalist and you're following X, Y, and Z. I'm not talking about legalism here. Talking about faithfulness through the obedience to his word. It'll, it'll provide blessing. Not our version, but his version. And the final thing to overcome your greatest fear <clears throat> is this, to seek his presence and remember his provision. If you want to overcome your fear, it's in the presence of God daily. 
living in the presence of God, in relationship with God, and also remembering his provision. I think facing your fear, your greatest what if, is only achievable and doable inside the presence of God. On your own strength, you will be debilitated by it. And if you've been doing it on your own, you realize, yes, it's debilitating and, and it's hard and it plagues me. It impacts my marriage. It impacts the way I raise my kids. It impacts my, my life and my, my work, all of it. It's only doable inside of his presence. And here's what's available to all of us daily is his presence. He says over and over again, I am with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. He says that to Joshua. Jesus also says that to us in Matthew 28, 20. It comes right after the Great Commission. Actually, it's, it's in the Great Commission. It says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to what? Obey everything I've commanded you. And then he says, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Those who follow Jesus and are on mission for him, building his kingdom, loving, serving, making disciples, teaching people to obey the truth in God's word. If you're on that purpose and that mission, which he has for all of us, he says he's with you forever. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you in that journey. That's a promise that he has for all of us. And you can walk in his presence. Jesus is about to ascend after he dies and he comes back to life. He, lives, he stays on earth for like 40 days roughly. And then he's going to ascend back into heaven to the right hand of the father. And when he's about to do that, he says, guys, I'm gonna go. My followers, I'm leaving. And it's good that I'm leaving because I'm sending you the advocate. I'm sending you the helper. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit who is God's presence that can reside in you. And it's God's presence that resides among us as believers, his church, his body. And you can live in the presence of God daily with the Holy Spirit ministering and guiding you, helping you, your advocate alongside your journey in this life. And that's how you overcome fear. That's how you live in peace because peace is really only found in his presence. Joy that you crave and want is only found in his presence. Contentment and satisfaction, the ability to have courage no matter what you are afraid of is found in his presence. And so my question to you is, do you live in his presence? Have you ever made the step of faith to invite his presence into your life? That's step one. And then it's daily remaining in his presence and seeking his presence and seeking his word and seeking his truth and living out his call for your life. And if you haven't, you can do that today. I'll talk about that in a minute. Here's the other part about his provision, remembering his provision. We have spiritual amnesia. I think all of us have spiritual amnesia. We forget how quickly we forget how faithful and how good God has been to us. Right? Think about how faithful he was when he went to the cross and he died and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. How incredibly faithful he was to take that journey to the cross and provided a way for you to be reconciled to God, to have a relationship with the God of the universe. But yet, in our day, and we know that God says, I'll be with you, Jesus, I'll be with you, fear not. Well, often we forget how good and faithful he was in that moment. And then in moments that precede that to where he was faithful in your marriage and with your kids and with that job and with finances, and you see these glimpses of God's provision and blessing in your life, how quickly we have spiritual amnesia and forget. And then I think back to the nation of Israel, of how quickly they forgot time and time 
again. You realize when they got set free from Egypt and they cross the Red Sea and they're wandering around and they're like, oh, what are we doing here? I don't know what we're doing. God's provision was a cloud by day to shadow them and a fire by night to guide them. They were like, hey, we need food. And food just shows up out of nowhere, out of the sky. Manna falls from heaven. Hey, we need some, we need some water now. Moses strikes a rock with his staff and water comes from a rock. Time and time again, the nation of Israel saw incredible miracles before their eyes. But yet when things get hard and they're afraid, they want to run back to captivity in Egypt. And they forget with spiritual amnesia how God had been so good to them. And then I go, oh, yeah, they were human. And I'm human. We're all human. And we have a tendency to forget how good and how faithful and the provision that God has provided for us. But if you want to overcome the fear that's in front of you, look back at the fear you've navigated through. Look back at how he's provided for you in so many other ways and know that he is faithful and good and will provide again through this next what-if season that you might have in your life. The crazy thing about human psychology is that what you look for, you will find. What you set your mind on, you will start to see that in the world. What your expectations are about someone or a circumstance or situation oftentimes will become the reality of the situation, circumstance, and person. There's this clip I want to show you here in a minute. It's going to reiterate the fact of what you look for is what you will find. And so I'm going to play an audio clip, and I just want you to listen to the audio, and I want you to recall and remember the phrase that is being chanted in this video. You have no, you have no expectation. I've not conditioned you. Just listen to what you hear on the audio. What would you hear, anybody? Gibberish. This ain't going to work. Did anybody hear that is embarrassing? No? Perfect. Oh, one person. Thank you. Now, I'm going to play a video alongside. Now, it's from a, a show on NBC, so I can't vouch for the show. And I didn't watch the show. Again, Google, I found this resource. This is an incredible psychological test and manipulation of how easily we are swayed. Now, watch the clip and tell me what you hear and follow the clip. Okay, 
Isn't that crazy? What you've been conditioned to hear with your eyes, you hear, even though it's the same chant from a crowd. That is embarrassing. And it's, 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 it's kind of fascinating that he says, you know, you don't see reality, you see your reality. What you see, what you fixate on, is what your whole life will be defined by. Craig Rochelle, he wrote a book, and, and he, he's quoted with this. You gravitate in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Your life, your reality, your experience in this life will gravitate towards what you think and dwell on in your mind. And I think about all the messaging that we have of what's true and what's real and what's right, all the phrasing, all the language, all the ideologies, and we hear the word of God. We may hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, this is what's true, but we're so conditioned with what we've seen and what we've seen other people experience and what other people define as true that oftentimes it gets mixed up and meddled in our human psychology and we get overwhelmed with fear of like, what is true? And so I I plead with you. Meditate on his word. Meditate on scripture. Memorize scripture. The apostle Paul says scripture is is the sword of the spirit. The Holy Spirit's ability for you to defend against lies and deception and the enemy saying, is that really what God said? Is knowing his word. Jesus, when he was isolated and alone, 40 days in the desert, no food, no water, like totally, like mentally exhausted, Satan shows up to him and tempts him over and over, or three times. And Jesus quotes the word of God, the truth of God's word to fight the attacks of the enemy. You see, fear is a mental game. It's spiritual warfare. It's in our mind. Satan wants to plague your mind and pollute your mind and get you to believe all kinds of crazy things about reality. But your reality as a follower of Jesus is you know the end. You know that he's already won the battle. He's already overcome it. He's been so good and so faithful on the cross. And if you follow him, his blessing will be made manifest. If you stay faithful and persevere and overcome the fear by realizing your feelings are not always reliable. The word of God is written on my heart and on my lips and I can meditate on it. I can speak it when a thought comes to my life that makes me fearful. And I will remain in his presence and I will constantly remember his provision. That's how you fight the what ifs, the hypotheticals. So my question for you is, what are you so afraid of? What's your phobia? What are you so afraid of? And would you trust God with it? Would you surrender the control that you think you have over, but you don't have that much control over it? And give it into the hands of the God who will be so good and so faithful to you on the other side. And wants to bring you peace and joy and contentment in the journey through the fear. And you'll be stronger on the other side. Where have you become an extremist, a worst case scenarioist, and live plagued by fear? Where are you compromising to the right and to the left, just subtly, over God's truth of what he's already spoken? What is it for you? What lie from the enemy have you believed? Did God really mean that? He wrote that 2,000 years ago. Did he really mean that? And here's the thing about when our fleshly experience and the word of God come in contradiction to one another, our flesh wants to go, we question the word of God. And I would say this, when your fleshly experience and the word of God are at odds with one another, you should question your human experience and not the word of God. 
You should let the word of God inform your human experience and don't let your human experience inform your interpretation of the word of God. It's truth. It's timeless. It's applicable. It's authoritative over our lives as those who want to follow Jesus and experience the fullness of life that he offers to you. It's not a book of rules to make you a legalist and neurotic and wondering whether or not I'm a follower of Jesus because I didn't follow it. No, there's grace more abundant for you. But are you using this to inform every human experience that you have? Whether it's joy or whether it's fear, the mountain or the valley, this is word of God inform your experience and not the other way around. Our world wants to take our feelings and manipulate scripture to make it feel better for us. And I'm sorry, here at Newbridge Church, we will not do that. We will let the word of God, the truth of God, inform our human experience. Because subtle sins, subtle compromises will lead to greater moral failure. So are you compromising with your finances and your marriage, being unfaithful by looking at things on the internet you're not supposed to be looking at, talking to women inappropriately or men inappropriately? Are you compromising by not forgiving the person that you need to forgive? Because the Bible is pretty clear that you, if you're receiving God's forgiveness, you got to give it, but you're withholding it. Are you, are you having premarital sexual interaction with someone who's not your spouse? Or are you having sexual interaction with someone who's not your spouse when you're married? Are you lying all the time? And lying isn't just telling a flat out lie. It's exaggerating the truth a little bit. That's a slight adjustment to the right or to the left. Are you plagued by comparison and identity crisis of not believing that you're good enough or capable, even though God has said you're my child and I will empower you to do all things and I'll never leave you and forsake you? Where have you subtly compromised? And be ruthlessly determined. Be careful to not. It would be a shame for us to miss out on heaven and also the joy of peace and, or the, the promise of peace and joy in this life because we trusted in the world and not the word. It would be a shame that we miss out on the fullness of life that God has because we're letting the world inform us and not his word inform us. And so the decision is ours. You can experience his presence today. If you haven't started that relationship, that's ground zero and begin the journey with him. And the final thing I want to say is, <laughs> Jesus, he faced his greatest fear. In Luke 22, Jesus, he's in the, on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. And he's praying, and this is his prayer. He's saying, God, would you let this cup pass over me? And what he's meaning is saying, God, I know what's about to happen I know I'm going to be brutally beaten. I'm going to be betrayed by my friends. I'm going to be crucified on that cross and I'm going to die. And I wish, Father, that we could do this a different way. Your God, if there's another way, can we do it a different way? That's what he's saying. Basically, Jesus, I'll say it this way. He didn't want to die for you. He didn't want to die for you. He asked that God would do it a different way. So facing his greatest fear, he was sweating blood, literally. His capillaries and his sweat glands burst because he's under great fear, duress, stress, anxiety. And he's saying, God, let's do this another way. But then after he prays that prayer, he ends his prayer with, God, not my will, but your will. God, if this is the only way to save your people, your creation, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so would you be like Jesus in facing your greatest fear? Whatever comes, you say, I don't really want to do this, God. 
I don't really want to follow this. I don't really like the way this makes me feel. I don't really want to do what you are calling me to do, but not my will, but your will. And man, if you can get that in your heart and in your head and make that a mission to live your life by, I promise you, you'll be blessed. I promise you, you'll have joy. I promise you'll have peace. I promise that you will be able to overcome any fear that you are plagued with. Not my will, but yours. And when Jesus prayed that, there was an angel, it says, that came and ministered to him. And I believe when we get honest with God and we pray those kinds of prayers, he'll minister to us through his spirit. He'll strengthen us. He'll give us the courage to do the right thing, even when we're scared to death and freaking out. And I have my greatest what if. And it almost, and it almost became a reality for me in 2020. And I'll share that next week. That's a manipulation to get you to come back. We all have something. Would you trust God with it? So Father, I pray that your spirit right now would just minister to us as we worship and seek you in your presence through song, that you would allow us to be honest about what's really plaguing us and fearful that we're fearful of. And God, that you would just speak to us, be strong and courageous like you did to Joshua. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. I'll never forsake you. Trust me. Follow me. My word is reliable, not your feelings. And would you surrender the control? Would you put all of your trust and all of your faith and all of your hope in me and my purpose and my plan for every circumstance that we walk through in this life? And God, I pray that we would just be real. We'd open up, we'd be honest, we'd relinquish, we'd let go. And you would reach, reach us and minister to us in our fear and through our fear and help us overcome it, to live the purpose, the life, the joy and the peace that you have. I pray in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.